Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Good evening and happy Tuesday, everyone. You are listening to the Murder Bucket Podcast. And right now, we are in a series called The Cold Case Road Trip. If this is your first time listening or your 40th time listening, I'm going to briefly explain. The Cold Case Road Trip is a series that we have been doing over the last 30 episodes where we travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories, and each week we cover two cold cases. Tonight, we are on stops 43 and 44, and we are traveling to New Mexico and South Dakota. But as always, let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. Two weeks ago, I wasn't able to do the podcast, obviously, because there wasn't a new episode last week, only because I had a lot of things going on. My supervisor at work retired, so we went out last Tuesday to kind of bid her farewell, see her off, tell her how much we're going to miss her, you know, the whole shebang. And I really just wasn't feeling mentally prepared to do the podcast on Tuesday. And I know that might seem like a little bit of a cop-out, but I need to take care of myself. And I did, and it was a much-needed break. Now, this week, we celebrated Labor Day, so at least I had an extra day off. I don't know about you guys, but I did, and it was really nice. Saturday, I went out with my friend Lindsay and her stepdad and mom, and we went crabbing. That is like a big thing here in Maryland to do, and it was my first time, and I was really excited about it. We were out on the boat, I think, for probably close to four hours and caught about three dozen crabs, which was really fun. Now, I am a very pale person, and I usually require like SPF 70 or higher, or I will get really sunburned. And being my first time out crabbing, I didn't realize we were going to be out for so long. I didn't bring sunscreen. So I got what is called boat legs, where the top of my knees were the only thing that were sunburned. It hurt for maybe like a day and a half. But now it seems to be fine, and my knees are just a little bit red. Now, I also have to mention that I got a really nice tan on my arms, which out of 31 years on this earth, I don't think has ever happened. So I am pretty proud of it. Anytime I see somebody for the first time in a day, 
I usually take my watch off and show them my epic watch tan because, of course, I have to be proud of it. So then Sunday we went to church and then after church we went to the Renaissance Festival here in our area, which we usually try and do once or twice a year. And this was the first weekend that we went. Not sure if we're going to go again, but we might. Technically, it was my daughter's second time going, but I don't know if the first time really counts because she was still in the womb, but it was really great. She did actually take a nap while we were out there, which is highly unusual for her. We saw lots of shows. We watched a jousting event. We ate a lot of food, had some good drinks, hung out with our friends. It only sprinkled for probably a little bit, so not as bad as we were expecting. And it was only about 75 to 80 degrees outside, which was perfect. Then Monday, we went back over to my friend Lindsay's house and ate the crabs that we caught and hung out there for a little bit. We helped her put her TV stand together um, because she just moved into a new place recently and haven't really gotten things set up. And that's kind of my love language is to help other people out and to kind of put things together. And then now it's Tuesday and you're here hanging out with me. So let's go ahead and get started. Stop 43, New Mexico. 19-year-old Tara Calico set off on her pink huffy bike on the morning of September 20th, 1988, for her daily bike ride in Belen, New Mexico. Some articles state that she rode 37 miles a day, while others state it was only 17. She would ride along State Road 47. On occasion, her mother Patty Dole would accompany her, but Patty stopped riding with her because she felt as though she was being stalked by a motorist. In an article on disappearedblog.com, it is said that the motorist nearly ran them off the road. Patty suggested to her daughter to carry Mace with her, but Tara rejected this idea. Now, my first thought after reading this in an article on wikipedia.com is that her mother should have continued to ride with her just to protect her or make her change routes. Because it is obvious that this motorist knew where they rode every morning. Now, I'm not saying that her mom was in the wrong here by any means, so please don't take this the wrong way. It is just my opinion. We know that times were different in 1988 as they are now. Now, Tara asked her mother to come get her if she wasn't home by noon because she had plans with her boyfriend at 1230. When Tara didn't come home at noon, Patty went out searching along the route, but was unable to locate her. When she was unable to find any signs of Tara, she returned home and called the police. Investigators that showed up to do a search along the route found Tara's broken Walkman and cassette tape. They weren't able to determine if the Walkman was damaged during a struggle or was thrown in an attempt to mark her trail or was run over by a passing vehicle. The police questioned several people, and only a few of them recalled seeing a light-colored 1950s pickup truck 
with a truck bed camper attached that was following Tara. They believe that she didn't notice the truck because she was listening to music. But no one witnessed an accident or an abduction. Patty and many of her family went back to the bike route the following day to see if they could find any other clues that the police might have missed. The only thing that they found were skid marks and bike tracks near where her Walkman was found. Police also discovered bike tracks that turned suddenly to the side of the road onto the shoulder and led to a spot 100 yards away. They found more tire tracks and a fresh oil slick. In an article on Bugspace.com, Lawrence Romero, who had been the sheriff since 1976, is quoted saying, We feel that this is an involuntary disappearance. We understand from talking to her parents and friends that this is totally out of character for her to turn up missing. In October, police announced that they believed at least two men had kidnapped Tara. This was all based on a witness who came forward claiming to have seen two men in a pickup truck around 11.45 the morning of her disappearance. They described the driver as being between 35 and 40 years old with reddish hair. The police released a sketch of the driver and it did generate over 100 phone tips and four interviews, but from all of this, no one was arrested. The case hit a standstill until, nine months later, in June of 1989, a woman at a gas station in Port St. Joe, Florida, picked up a Polaroid on the ground that fell out of the back of a van being driven by a man thought to be in his 30s. In this photo, there was a young boy and a woman. Both had tape over their mouths and their hands and legs were bound. She turned the photo over to the police immediately. Roadblocks were set up to try and intercept the vehicle. The man was never identified. The police did contact Polaroid officials to have them make a determination as to when the photo was taken. They believe that the photo was taken in May because the film that was used wasn't available until then. The photo was broadcast on America's Most Wanted and A Current Affair. After the photo aired, many friends and families contacted Patty, stating that they believed the woman in the photo was Tara. At first, Patty didn't believe that the woman was Tara, but the more she looked at it, the more confident she became. In the photo, it showed that the woman had a discolored streak on her thigh. Tara had a similar scar in the same place when she was involved in a car accident as a younger child. Next to the woman, there was a paperback written by V.C. Andrews, which was one of Tara's favorite authors. Scotland Yard did an analysis on the photo and concluded that the woman was in fact Tara. The Los Alamos National Laboratory disagreed with their findings. The FBI's analysis was inconclusive. Now the question remains, who was the boy in the photo with Tara? There were several young boys who went missing in the area who were a possible match to the boy. One in particular was 10-year-old Michael Henley. He vanished from the area in April of 1988 
when he was on a hunting trip with his father. Unfortunately, his remains were discovered in June of 1990 in the Zuni Mountains, roughly seven miles from where his family's campsite was. The police believe that he wandered away from his family and died from exposure to the elements and don't believe that the boy in the photo was him. Now, it is possible that Michael was abducted, taken to wherever the photo was taken, killed, and then brought back near the family campsite to make it look like he died from exposure. To me, it looks like these two people were inside the white van that was spotted at the gas station in Port St. Joe, Florida. Now, I've seen the inside of a cargo van many times. My husband currently drives one for work. Tara's biological father, David, was mugged outside of a bar in Albuquerque by two men. They stole his wallet, two rings, and his heart medication. As a result, he died in his sleep in November of 2002. Patty and Tara's stepfather, John, moved to Port Charlotte, Florida in September of 2003. Patty passed away in May of 2006 after suffering a series of strokes. In September of 2008, 20 years after Tara disappeared, Rene Riviera, a detective from Valencia County, made an explosive revelation during an interview with a local Valencia County newspaper. He claimed that two boys accidentally ran over Tara and that their parents helped hide her body. He went on to state that they knew the identities of the two boys, but made no arrest because her body was never found. He would not release any of the evidence given to him that led him to make this conclusion. Tara's stepdad, John, strongly criticized him for making accusations and never attempting to arrest anyone. 22 pages of the initial police report were released through public records. The first portion of the report was dated April 1997. It listed three possible suspects, Lawrence Romero Jr., Dave Silva, and Leroy Chavez. It also listed a possible gravesite of a missing person. In June of 2009, a letter postmarked from Albuquerque was received by the Port St. Joe Police Department that had a photo of a young boy with brown hair. His mouth was covered with black ink, and many believe that it was the same boy from the original Polaroid that was found in 1989. Two months later, in August, another letter was received with an identical photo as before. The only difference, the boy's mouth wasn't covered with the black ink. That same month, a Port St. Joe newspaper received a letter also postmarked from Albuquerque. It contained the initial photo that the police department received. While the police are unsure if the boy in the photo is the same from the Polaroid, they consider it a notable coincidence that the photos were sent almost to the day of the 20th anniversary of when the first Polaroid was found. The second portion of the police report was dated April of 2010. It mentioned a documentary filmmaker who went to school with Tara. They were trying to make a documentary regarding Tara's case. 
This report also mentioned the three possible suspects, one of whom was now deceased. The third portion of the police report was dated November of 2013. It mentions an interview with Valencia County's former sheriff's deputy, Frank Methola. He states that when he was with the sheriff's office, he followed up on multiple leads in regards to Tara's disappearance, including interviewing a man named Henry Brown. Henry was on his deathbed and wanted to make a confession. He claimed that shortly after Tara's disappearance, he was in the basement of Lawrence Romero Jr.'s home and noticed that the body of a young woman was wrapped in a blue tarp. He stated that two other boys mentioned in the first report were there as well and participated in her murder. He told Sheriff Methola that they knew Tara rode along Highway 47, hit her with their car, sodomized her, and raped her. He went on to state that Tara said she was going to tell the police what they did and send them to jail, which made them panic and kill her. He claimed that the reason they got away with the whole thing was because Lawrence was the son of the sheriff mentioned in the article on Bugspace.com and hired Renee Riviera to cover up the whole thing. A task force was created in 2013 consisting of six local and federal agents to reopen this investigation. No arrests have been made. Bernalillo County Sheriff Dan Houston made a statement in 2013 stating, We have tried to make it clear to the families that are involved in our cold cases that we continue to have resolved to bring justice to their loved ones for the crimes that they've suffered in their families. Tara's sister Michelle and friend Melinda created a podcast in 2017 to start their own investigation into this case. The FBI offered a $2,000 reward in 2019. Tara graduated from Bellin High School and was enrolled as a sophomore at the University of New Mexico, where she was studying psychology. She was very active and enjoyed running, cycling, and playing many sports. At the time of her disappearance, she worked at a local bank. Friends described her as someone most people would admire. In addition to America's Most Wanted and a current affair airing Tara's story, her parents went on Oprah to talk about their daughter and her disappearance. At the time of her disappearance, Tara was last seen wearing a white t-shirt with First National Bank of Bellin on it, white shorts with green stripes, socks, and white and turquoise shoes. If you have any information regarding Tara's disappearance, you are encouraged to contact the Valencia County Sheriff's Department or the FBI Albuquerque Office. Before we head on to Stop 44 in South Dakota, let's hear from tonight's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. This summer has been big, and now that everything is finally getting back to normal, people are heading out for long overdue vacations. And that means people will be playing Best Fiends like crazy. Best Fiends is the five-star rated puzzle game that's the perfect travel companion 
and you can download it for free from the Apple Store or Google Play. Collect more of your favorite cute characters while you're waiting in line at an amusement park. Or soak up just a little more sun as you try to defeat just one more challenging level. This game has over 5,000 levels, so the fun never stops. Every time you play, there's always something new to experience. Make the most of your summer downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends on the Apple app or Google Play for free. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And we're back. Stop 44, South Dakota. Candace Rough Surface was 18 years old when she disappeared on August 2nd, 1980. A rancher found her body in a bay of Lake Oahe nine months later. Sixteen years later, a family member of one of her killers came forward with information regarding her death. Two men raped her and shot her. They then hooked a chain around her body and threw her into the Missouri River. Sharon Bald Eagle was 12 years old when she went missing on September 18, 1984, while living on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. She and a friend ran away and were eventually picked up by a man named Royal Russell Long. Royal took the girls to his home in Wyoming. He tied them up and beat them. Sharon's friend was able to escape, but Sharon has been missing ever since. Her father, Taylor Bald Eagle, wears a beaded necklace that belonged to his daughter every day. He states in an article on ArgusLeader.com, She travels with me, no matter where I go. To me, she's still my little girl. Ivy Armchabalt was 31 when she disappeared from her McLaughlin home on October 4, 2001. Her body was found a week later in a pasture near Newell. She was a social worker at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Her sister opened the women's shelter called Pretty Bird Women House on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in memory of her. Leslie Iron Road was staying with a friend in McLaughlin on February 20th of 2003 when she decided to attend a party that was a few miles away. The next morning, she was found locked in a bathroom. She had been raped. She died at a hospital in Bismarck, North Dakota, a week later. Larissa Lonehill texted her cousin on October 3, 2016, that she was hanging out with two male friends in Rapid City. This was the last time anyone ever heard from her. Detectives believe her body might have been disposed of within a 100-mile radius of the area, but she has yet to be located. You may be wondering why I just briefly told you about five women that have either been murdered or disappeared without a trace. That's because there are so many missing and murdered indigenous women that the world will never hear about. But the state of South Dakota is working diligently to change that. On July 1st, 2019, a new law went into effect 
that will require the Division of Criminal Investigation to collect data on missing and murdered Indigenous people, create procedures and training for investigating cases involving women and children. It received unanimous support from the South Dakota House and Senate. This is the first step in understanding the depth of the missing and murdered Indigenous women issue in the state. In an article on ArgisLeader.com, bill sponsor Senator Lynn DeSanto hopes that the bill will help families feel like the state cares about their loved ones. She hopes it leads to better collaboration between tribal and non-tribal law enforcement in these cases. Representative Tamara St. John believes that the jurisdiction complexities is what causes the delays in reporting or the cases falling through the cracks. Senator DeSanto and Representative St. John point out the case of Corin White Thunder, whose body was found in the Missouri River after she had been missing for 18 months. She was never reported missing. They give this case as an example of why the legislation was needed. Senator DeSanto is quoted in an article on NewsCenter1.tv stating, Clearly, we have a breakdown of missing Native American women, specifically in South Dakota, that no one is looking for. And that's not right, and it needs to be improved. In 2002, a law called Savannah's Act went into effect. This bill directs the Department of Justice to review, revise, and develop law enforcement and justice protocols to address missing or murdered Indigenous people. The bill also authorizes the DOJ to provide grants for the purposes of developing and implementing policies and protocols for law enforcement regarding cases of missing or murdered Indigenous people and compiling and annually reporting data relating to missing or murdered Indigenous people. NativeWomen'sWilderness.com share statistics and they are mind-blowing, so please be prepared. Murders of Indigenous women are 10 times higher than any other ethnicity. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women as reported by the CDC. More than four out of five Indigenous women have experienced violence as reported by the National Institute of Justice report. More than half Indigenous women experience sexual violence. More than half Indigenous women have been physically abused by their intimate partners. Less than half of Indigenous women have been stalked in their lifetime. Indigenous women are 1.7 times more likely than Anglo-American women to experience violence. Indigenous women are two times more likely than Anglo-American women to be raped. The murder rate of Indigenous women is three times higher than Anglo-American women. In March 2021, South Dakota created a liaison for missing and murdered Indigenous people. RapidCityJournal.com says that South Dakota Attorney General's Office will hire a full-time employee that
that will work on and provide training about solving missing and murdered Indigenous persons cases. In an article on SueLandProud.com, when House Bill 1199 was presented, Representative Jess Olson is quoted saying, I think this is every child matters, and we know that if we're conservative pro-life Republicans. Children matter, their rights matter, their voices matter, and this coordinator liaison role would be a voice for those missing children. That should, I hope, resonate with every South Dakotian. In an article on the crimereport.org issued in March of 2021, a 19-year-old indigenous girl was found dead in 2019 after she disappeared in the 1,900-square-mile reservation in one of the most isolated parts of the lower 48 states. A family friend, Melina Richards, recently won a grant from the CARES Act Fund that is available to tribes so that they can open shelters for women and homeless teens on the reservation. This is the first of its kind of safe house that will be a badly needed refuge for people. Project manager for the new shelter is quoted stating, At house parties, I saw the disturbing side of the reservation. How bad things can get. How addiction takes over people's lives. People sell their own kids and sell themselves. Many tribal members say that prostitution, drug trafficking, and domestic violence have become rampant on the Rosebud Reservation where unemployment is high and communities have some of the lowest life expectancy rates in the nation. A tribal council representative, Sharon Swift, tells reporter Kirk Siegel of NPR that there have been two murders recently. She points to a row of boarded-up houses where she tells him that several women have gone missing in the past year. A recent survey found that there are more than 100 homeless teenagers in the area. She is quoted saying, I would consider it a state of emergency in Indian country, not only here on the Rosebud, but everywhere. Students from South Dakota State University were working to help raise awareness for the missing and murdered Indigenous women by hanging red dresses on trees around campus in April of 2021. Jack Walters, professor of management and coordinator of Dakota State University's Masters of Business Administration program, believes the striking red dresses hanging from the trees around campus will have an impact of those who see them, attracting attention to an issue of which many may be unaware. According to the State Office of the Attorney General, 19 Indigenous women between the ages of 14 and 17 have been reported missing since the beginning of this year. Miles Livermont, who is the president of the Native American Student Association at Dakota State University, is quoted in MadisonDailyLeader.com stating, Non-tribal members come in and kidnap indigenous women. Nobody ever gets caught or put in jail. A lot of the missing women are from the reservation. When they leave, the jurisdiction changes. 
We want to memorialize the Indian women we have lost. We are trying to remember them. He goes on to admit that as a white passing male, he can't speak to the experience of Native American women, but he is aware of factors which contribute to this problem. It is the hope of the student associates that they will be able to bring speakers to campus and do fundraising to support efforts to prosecute those responsible for these crimes. As of September 7, 2021, the South Dakota Attorney General's Directory of Missing Persons lists 91 people missing in their state. Of those 91, 64 of them are indigenous. That is 70.3%. If you would like to help in any way with the missing and murdered indigenous people, I would encourage you to make a donation on National Indigenous Women's Resource Center at niwrc.org slash donate or with the Association of American Indian Affairs at indian-affairs.org. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Before you go, please check out this promo from my friends at A Killer Podcast. Hello and welcome to A Killer Podcast. We're a true crime podcast created by lifelong best friends who share a birthday, a shoe size and a borderline unhealthy obsession with true crime. I'm Freya Millard. And I'm Amy Woodcock and we're your hosts. On each new season of A Killer Podcast, we explore a different theme surrounding true crime. And to kick it all off in season one, we investigated murders with a supernatural twist. That's right. And for season two, we are tackling cases surrounding murder for money. So we'll be talking about the most extravagant and crazy ways people try to kill each other for some extra cash. And don't forget, we've also got our two-part Halloween special out right now and we have plans for many more specials in the works. At the end of each episode we try to give you a glance at the bigger picture of the true crime field by asking each other burning questions relating to our educational backgrounds. Yes, you see, I have a social science background and Amy has one in forensics and between the both of us, we hope to paint a relatively thorough picture. So what are you waiting for? Get listening on your preferred podcasting platform at A Killer Podcast. And feel free to follow along with us on social media at A Killer Podcast. Until then, have a killer week. Goodbye. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram, at Murd Bucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day!